Welcome back to Anchi Goes the Podcast. This is episode 14, season three. This is the last episode of season three, and we'll be starting season four very soon. Um, So today's episode, we have three awesome guests, Robin Moxie. She is a writer and activist. And we also have Aisha Nataraja, who is the co-director of Traveling While Black, the VR experience, which premiered at Sundance Film Festival. And we also have Tyree Chapeau, who is the director of Sela in the Spades. And before we get started, I just wanted to dedicate this episode to my my nephew, Josiah Nana Osebewa, uh, who recently passed away. And to his memory, we will forever cherish him and we will never forget you, young prince. I'm sitting here with Robin Moxie. She is an activist, uh, a documentarian, and a writer. Um, She is a Native woman, and she is here to talk to us about traveling as a Native woman. I'm glad that we're here doing this because I don't want to ignore our Native sisters who we're, you know, we haven't been able to do a lot of content for because we can't necessarily speak to it. So I'm so thankful for you, honestly, if that's okay. I'm so <laughs> excited to be here. Yeah. So. Yay! Okay. First things first, um, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Hey, so I am Stockbridge Mohican Muncie. Mm-hmm. Um, my reservation is now located in Wisconsin. And I say now because we were one of those that was historically moved from like Massachusetts over to Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Um, this is a whole other... Wait, what is that? What, can you explain that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, so that me? comes from the Indian termination policy. And even prior to that, when they were like, how do we move people from their original lands and move them to areas to either reservation lands, which were historically in very um, agriculturally uh, droughted areas or places that were new to these people and we they moved us with another tribe mm-hmm. that we had no ties to initially it was one of, and this happened to quite a few there's 573 federally recognized tribes in the u.s okay. and 172 reservations and each wow. of us have different languages we have yes. different cultures there's certain similarities right. but i think sometimes the diversity within indian culture gets so diluted in in mass media because people are like well you know yeah. there's not enough of you guys and I sort of understand that, but I'm not happy with it. Yeah, <laughs> no. And there would be enough of us if, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> if we weren't split up. Yeah. That's that's crazy. So um, you're an activist. Tell me a little bit about your activism. So I think as a Native woman, you're, you're, you sort of have that. I don't want to say you have that in you, but it's I know like with inherent. me, like, I was just really upset about things. And blood quantum specifically was, right. I grew up with this system and it seems wrong. And even mm-hmm. as a kid, you know, certain things are wrong. And mm-hmm. blood quantum, for those that That's aren't aware, is the system that 
quantifies your blood. Mm -hmm. Um, The only other groups in the U.S. that use this are horses and dogs and Native Americans. Mm -hmm. So I technically have to carry around a card that says I'm Native American. When I travel, Mm -hmm. in order to keep certain uh, ceremonial things with me, I have to show this card. I have to produce this acrobatic routine of showing paperwork and Mm -hmm. telling people where I'm from and all of this just to keep stuff that's close to me. And it's really demeaning. It's really dehumanizing in a lot of ways. It's super dehumanizing. Yeah, and so blood quantum had been, even as a kid, because you're always, you're either too native or you're not native enough. I was called an apple growing up, which red on the outside, white in the inside. Hmm. They're like, look at her, she's reading, she's trying to be white, which is a really self-defeating. Yeah. Because you're like, wait, hold up, but you realize it's systemic. Of course. Um, I didn't know the word systemic, but, and that's where, like public libraries were so helpful to me. I would Mm -hmm. go to them. I would not only read about Worlds Away and People Worlds Away, but I also started blogging. Mm -hmm. Um, And I started coding. Mm -hmm. And I had this blog, and I would just ramble and rant about, like, indigenous issues. Mm -hmm. And no matter where I went after that, I had this blog that sort of gave me stability. And the UN ended up shortlisting it back in 2013 or so. And... From there, like I was, I enrolled at I was enrolled at a tribal college, and people were like, "Hey, you have strong opinions about this. Would you be willing to speak up?" And mm-hmm. once you start getting, you find out other things that are wrong, then you're like, "Oh, I like once you know of something, you have to speak about it." Like there's sort of that responsibility I think you have as a person to say, like, st- you know, it's scary, mm-hmm. but I would end up talking a lot about tribal education because that's another thing where people are like, "Well." What we would run into in the Senate is people are like, well, there's not enough. What's coming out of tribal colleges? Why should we support them? Why can't you just go to a mainstream institution? And it's like, wait, why are you trying to get? Yeah, that's that's, (laughs) exactly that's frustrating. And it was like, hold up. These these are institutions that are built on reservations that serve the community that have a different measure of success and different measure of standards. And you're holding us to this Western ideal. Yeah. Why, why is that? Why, why is it always like a whitewash? Exactly. Always. And it became the sort of like, even when you measure our, um, when you're looking at our standards, if you're going to qualify us and use quantification that you use on, let's say, a mainstream university where people historically are coming from privilege or things like that, and mm-hmm. you're looking at us, because I think the median age of a tribal college student is 31. Most people have children, have a family, then, then go, go to school. Mm-hmm. And I'm privileged because I was the first in my family to go to school. My mom mm-hmm. has her GED. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those, like wow, like, I I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. But once I was in that, then it was like, everyone should have this opportunity. Everyone should have this. Why don't we? And so I started speaking up more. And from there, it just sort of snowballed. And well, it's it's the work of many, because I'm definitely standing on the shoulders of my mom and of my grandmother and Mm -hmm. people, so many people around me who supported me, whether it's allies or other indigenous folk who Mm -hmm. are just... I think all of us are struggling with the fact that we're the invisible minority. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, we have very real issues that are very pertinent and very specific to our community. Again, mm-hmm. like blood quantum, it's this ticking time bomb of mm-hmm. statistical genocide. And people are like, well, what's the difference? Like, you're still going to exist. It's not like all of our rights are tied into having this. Yeah. So on paper, if you essentially are saying like, oh, you're not native. And to give you like an example of how blood quantum works. So let's say I'm, I hate the term full, which is again, a product of the quantification system or using blood quanta. But 
let's say I was full Stockbridge and I married somebody who's full Ojibwe, where our kids would not be automatically would not be full anything. They would only we would have to pick one tribe to enroll them with and they're automatically half of that quantum. Interesting. Every generation it's gonna have. Yeah. And my tribe is way too small in terms of like everybody's my so that cousin. So you have to marry somebody that's in your tribe. Yeah, and there's like six hundred of my people left. Right. So I'm not gonna be marrying a cousin. No. Yeah. <laughs> um no, can't have that. So mm-hmm. and then also like I'm I think my grandmother's generation would have been the start of our blood quantum in okay. terms of like because it, again, it wasn't a system that we we created. It was a system that was imposed on us. Mm-hmm. Paperwork starts with her first, and then we see this like, wait, no one has left the tribe, and yet every generation it automatically has because people married uh, other tribes. Mm-hmm. They married Ojibwe, which is really close to us, but it mm-hmm. still somehow is taking away my right to self-identify. Yeah, and my right, my rights as a person for I think. sure. That's, yeah, ooh, girlfriend. So <laughs> so one of the things I wanted to talk about was um, growing up on the reservation. So for, we, and we just spoke about this, for me, you know, I'm from Philadelphia, and and a lot of times, a lot of the women that we wanted to reach for On She Goes and, you know, was mainly around the idea of, like, not having the exposure to travel and to seeing other places. And so there's a fear there and there's an assumption and all of these things and like, oh, how are people going to view me or what do they think about me or, um, you know, just not wanting or, or being scared of just going to do something different, doing something new um, and experiencing things. And we wanted to try and inspire women to like just go out and do it, you know. Um, tell me a little bit, do, Is are there any apprehensions from growing up on the reservation about traveling and like leaving the res and like maybe going you know to different countries or seeing other places in the United States like are there any like apprehensions there as a native woman yeah I think especially as a native woman Mm -hmm. um we are the largest group and we're the only group that no statistics are kept on in terms of missing and murdered indigenous women. I read a lot about um, that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 2012 that we were given some protection and we were recognized as people under the violence against women act. Mm-hmm. So prior to that, if you were a native woman, you were basically taught like, Hey, this is going to happen to you at some point. Right. Be prepared. And it's a really scary feeling because you start realizing like, well, I don't, I don't want to go there because it's not safe for people like me. I don't have the same protections as everyone else. Right. But when I did start traveling, then I started realizing, oh, wait, people don't even know we still exist. And right. I would get conflated with all these other cultures, which is really interesting in itself. Mm-hmm. But it's also like when I would say like, oh, well, well, hey, I'm this. And I would people would correct me and tell me what my experience was. And it's like, no, no, no you're not. And yeah. it's like, they're like, cause you don't, you don't look like Pocahontas. And it's like, she's a cartoon character. That, first yeah, of all. yeah. 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 <laughs> and I think again, cause it, it's like, I was so ignorant of a lot of things and to meet people in person, you're just like, I remember when I found out why we were called minorities. <laughs> cause growing yeah. up, I'm around only natives 100%. or in Houston, like, where my mother lived, like, I was around Hispanic and black people mm-hmm. for the most part. Like, I would see the rare, yeah. like, Caucasian person right. at the store, and but they were so rare that, like, 
it wasn't really it didn't common. Feel like yeah, I tested into this fancy school that it was like in this really nice part of town, and they mm-hmm. wouldn't even send a bus out to where I lived. So I'd have to take like it was like an hour and a half to get to the school where our mascot was the Redskins. It was oh my the worst. But yet that school was overwhelmingly white and yeah. privileged, and it was so mind blowing because it's like whoa, like. This is why we're called minorities, because we're not represented. Yeah. And then also, like, there's so much privilege that exists here that isn't even being talked about. The fact that, you know, growing up, like, we had to haul water sometimes in the winter, and we Mm -hmm. had to do things like this. And this is just readily available. That I could just go into the library and check out as many books as I want. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, for (laughs) Um, sure. What was that like for you being in that school? Like, how how was that? I mean, it sounds, I, I just, I don't even know. Well, it's one of those things where, so the mascot was the Redskins, and they had this whole, like, it, I don't know, ceramic or porcelain. It was, like, 300 pounds, and it was called Big Red, and it was this this native, supposedly, that they would wheel out. Mm -hmm. And they would also have, like, these pep rallies where people would dress up. But it was so cartoony I never associated that with right, myself right and I remember somebody coming up to me and they're like I'm so sorry they're doing this to you and I was like what like what yeah. are they doing what are they doing yeah and she's like they're making fun of you and I was just like and it was one of those moments where it's like oh wow people see that and they think of me yeah and then I started realizing more and more because I would also run into like in history class everyone's head turns towards you um they're talking about Mm -hmm. whether it's Oneida or random tribes it's just Mm -hmm. you become the historian on all things Mm -hmm. native yeah you also become like well you're their only contact with it so you have to settle and I don't like this burden or this onus of like I have to be calm while while I'm correcting them and educating them and why is this burden on me right but then at the same time if I don't take this opportunity Mm -hmm. are they going to continue this attitude with other people that they meet Mm -hmm. and I remember people would correct me again because well you don't look like Pocahontas or well you talk different and it's like how do you expect me to talk yeah what do you you, expect me yeah what is your what if you don't know anyone who's like me, what do you, what did you expect? Exactly. Like- <laughs> or else there's this, there was this really interesting sort of like people are native on the side in a sense where it's like, Oh, you're native. Well, my grandmother was a Cherokee princess. And it's like, I, it's like, how do you respond to that? Because one yeah. that doesn't exist. Like, right. Yeah. Um, I was like, word sis. Like, okay. And then yeah. also it was almost like, this isn't a competition. Right. And it's almost it's marginalizing me further because it's taking away any sort of like agency that I have to, to say, Oh, I'm native. And this is, and then you're telling me like as a blonde blue eyed person that your experience is more valid because you have, you have a tribe that is more easily recognizable or something. And it was a very weird, I don't know if that fully answers the question. No, it does. (laughs) It totally does. Tell me a little bit about your experience traveling. Um, Do you feel even for like other countries, have you traveled internationally and all that? Yeah. So like, yeah. even when you go to other countries, do you feel like people understand or is do people ask you questions or do they just assume things about you or like, you know, because we know there's indigenous women around the world, you know, but like I think for Native Americans specifically, like just the, the horror that this country has put, you know, all of you through is just ridiculous. Um, so I would, I'm curious to know, like traveling internationally, traveling even around the country, like what is it like for you? What is, what has your experience been when you're, when it comes to traveling? 
So I was one of those that was so desperate to travel. Like Mm -hmm. I had grown up reading these books about places and the only places I had been were Houston. And when I said Houston's urban sprawl. Right. And I lived in a very, a very interesting sector of it that was sort of cut off by buses. I had to walk about a mile to the public bus. Right. And then it's next to rail yards Mm -hmm. and then or else I was on the res. So yeah. When I got the chance to leave, I took it and I just wanted to get out. And then Mm -hmm. that's when I started realizing, oh, wait, people don't know we exist at all. And then I would run into other sorts of things. I remember in Albuquerque, I was biking home one night after work and someone threw a bottle at my head, randomly threw a, a, a glass beer bottle and they were yelling out of their car, go back to Mexico. And it was one of those things where you're just like, well, it was like, it would be a fun (laughs) trip, but, (laughs) um, but it also, you, you become aware that, okay, like I, people don't know I exist and I'm, being associated with these other things that are really horrible that people are doing to other it's this whole sort of like people of color thing where people just put the stereotype upon you or this idea of I don't know I'm getting really messy with this explanation but no, it, it's fine. there was almost sort of an anger of like that I had because I felt like a lot of people I was so excited to travel and then I started traveling but I also started realizing that people felt like it was their space Mm. and it's sort of like Mm. and I think that created an anger in me which was just like no no I I can go these places right and I remember telling someone like I'm gonna go to DC and they're like well how and I was like I'll I'll get there and then like once I was in DC it was like you start set I would set these travel goals of like I'm gonna I'm gonna end up in the White House yeah and then (laughs) you end up in the White House yeah and you and it's it's surreal because oftentimes as a native woman, especially, I think there are these moments where I realize, you know, I'm probably the first, not just Mohican here. Mm -hmm. I'm probably one of the few natives who's ever been here. Mm. And that Mm. can sometimes be so, you know, it can cause a sort of existentialist, like, Oh my God, I'm alone in a room full of people. But it also makes me so proud because I feel like my ancestors, Yeah. yeah, my ancestors are with me. There's so many people that are just like, whose work has gotten me here. Right. And the first time I traveled internationally that wasn't Mexico or Canada, um, I was sent to do research in New Zealand under the National Science Foundation. Mm -hmm. And I was going to be working with Anna Marai with the Maori. Mm -hmm. And it was a really interesting cultural exchange Mm because, first of all, New Zealand in comparison to the U.S., does an amazing job of acknowledging whose land it is yes. and whose culture belongs there. Mm-hmm. And, and Or I shouldn't say whose culture belongs there, but why are we here? Because in the U.S., I almost feel like it's almost like you grow up with this idea of that you're a burden to the community outside of you. Like, yeah. why are you here? There's an erasure. Like, the, the U.S. tries to erase cultures. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like we... People will tell me, well, you didn't even exist here. I remember when I was in New York and I used to go up to the Bronx and there was this, it's a park called Van Cortland Park. Mm-hmm. And I would go up there and I would just draw, like, they. I would sit on some of the benches and just draw because it wasn't as packed as Central Park and it would give me, like... You know, when you're when you're broke, one of the things you realize is how much space is valuable and having the ability to, like, make crafts and stuff. So mm-hmm. I would use the park as, like, my space. And I never realized... Well, it took me a while to realize that the name of the baseball diamond that they had there was Indian Park in the mm-hmm. middle of Van Cortland. 
And I was telling somebody about, like, because years later, I was like, yeah, yeah, I remember, like, I ran away to New York. And it was weird because they had this place called Indian Park. So I Googled it. And I was, like, looking up the history. It turns out that's where my people, over 50 of them, were murdered. Like, I'm not going to mince. I feel like people will say, like, oh, they were killed or this happened. It's like, no, we were murdered murdered. and stacked up there. Right. And this happened continuously. But the thing is, I never knew that like I didn't even know that New York was our territory and New Stockbridge like Massachusetts and that area was Mm -hmm. but it's a sense of wow like to have this be so tied into my culture and to never know and it's to be one of the largest cities in the world Mm -hmm. again it's it's a reason why I feel like I'm gonna be loud and I'm gonna show up to places and Mm -hmm. I'm gonna do things and when I travel because I'm not coming in really polished and Maybe no one has ever seen someone like me. I'm not going to shirk from the responsibility of being a Native woman. Uh, Recently, I had this thing where I really wanted to belong in Mm -hmm. this place. Mm -hmm. But as the only Native woman there, like, someone said something that was super offensive. And Mm -hmm. I remember being like, okay, you really want to belong here. You shouldn't rock the boat. But then I was like, if another Native follows me and comes in one day and sees me joking around and letting people call me these words, I am part of the problem. And that's not how I was raised. And so anytime I go to a place, it's like, no, I'm Native and proud. We call our earrings uh, Native beacons on the res. Nice. Because it's a way that you know, like... People might not pick up that you're Native, but another Native will be like, oh, she's I Native. I know yeah. I can go to her. <laughs> yeah. It's sort right. of like when we see Pendleton peeking out of something. Yeah. We're like, <laughs> you're like, okay, like I know someone is here. Really quickly, first of all, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. We didn't get a chance to talk about um, advice or like anything you can give on people traveling to Native lands, uh, but <laughs> we can try to touch on that at another time. Um, but I wanted to let the people know where they can follow you. Um, and where they can find you and, you know, anything like that. <laughs> okay, I'm usually on Twitter at rmoxki, so R-M-A-X-K-I-I. Yes. <laughs> um, and I try to respond to things. Nice. Um, fairly good. <laughs> and are you on Instagram at all? Uh, it just redirects to, to Twitter, <laughs> to my Smart. Twitter, and everything's connected on there, so people can find my blog and stuff mm-hmm. from there. Wonderful. Um, you guys, you. check out Robin. She's amazing. I wish everybody could meet her. I'd just love to listen to her talk, honestly. <laughs> Next up, we're chatting with Aisha Nataraja. She's the co-director of Traveling While Black, the VR experience, which is mainly directed by Roger Ross Williams in conjunction with Felix and Paul Studios. The VR experience is a documentary that takes you on a firsthand glimpse into what it was like traveling as a black person in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, especially with the help of the Green Book. Aisha's gonna talk to us about her experience at Sundance and what it was like being a woman of color there and seeing all the rest of the directors and what films she's excited about and other women of color directors as well. What has your Sundance experience been like thus far? This has been one of the craziest experiences of my life. I think I was describing what I was feeling to someone And she said, it sounds like you're describing childbirth. You are exhausted. You're in pain. You want to give up. But at the same time, you're so overcome with joy and can't stop crying tears of joy. Um, It is 
I've never felt this way before in my life, and I don't think I would ever trade this experience for anything. So it's been amazing. Speaking of tears, um, <laughs> there's been a lot of tears this this Sundance and um, watching and experiencing the VR experience of traveling while black. I mean, as a black person, I mean, I know the risk that it is like every single day. And it's just, it's it was so moving and emotional to, to see this. And, and the storytelling is brilliant. Tell me what that experience was like in general. Like I have more specific questions about it. Like I wanna know, what do you feel like, did you, do you feel like you found out something new? Yeah, so I mean, this process has been a really, really long uh, time in the making. We actually started, I started on this project over four and a half years ago. My executive producer, Bonnie Nelson-Schwartz, who's an incredible woman, she produced a play about the Green Book at the Lincoln Theater in D.C. eight years ago with the late, great Julian Bond as the star. Um, as soon as that was done, she realized that this needed to continue, and so she started working on different iterations of the project, which is now Traveling While Black. Mm -hmm. There was a feature documentary in talks, there was a game, there was this, there was that, and then we finally linked up with Felix and Paul Studios and brought you this piece. But, I mean, it was such an emotional experience. We really knew that we wanted to put the viewers in to not the shoes of a black person, but to be able to experience that discomfort, that feeling of the inability to exit. You can't just get out of it. You can't just yeah. choose to leave right. because it's uncomfortable. Right. Our piece is uncomfortable. Everyone that's seen it feels uncomfortable and, and, and it does really hit a nerve. But part of this piece is that you're in this headset, you're surrounded by it and yeah. you have to be there and yeah. you have to witness it and you have to kind of get not even, an, I mean, not even a blip of what it really is to be black, but you can, we made a little crack so right. that you can see in and see this is what it's like. I right. mean, I've had several people come up to me and say, I am a changed person after seeing your film. Yeah. And the countless number of people that have said that, I mean, Virginia Ali herself saw the film mm -hmm. and she was here at Sundance and she said, I need to watch it again. I need to see it for a second time. Yeah. Um, but even to see her space represented in such a way and mm -hmm. translated to film, she she knew she had a safe space, but yeah. she didn't realize the position that it had in the community. And I think for her to recognize that was a big deal. Um, for our subjects, I mean, Samaria Rice, bringing all of them in, it was incredible with Cortland Cox and Frank Smith and mm -hmm. Reverend Sandra Butler Truesdale. They actually are all people that I met in Ben's Chili Bowl oh, with okay. Virginia. Virginia being like, oh, have you met my friend Frank? And then I sit down <laughs> at the counter and would have a conversation with Frank. And then I'm like, wait, Frank, will you be in this film? Right. And it's funny because none of them realized what this was. They all agreed to be in it because Virginia Ali said, they, yeah. trust her, could I mean, bring them. She could literally tell me to do anything. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so these are the people that were brought in and that's why they're there sharing their stories. It's because it is in Ben's and it's mm -hmm. because it was supported by Virginia and Bonnie is also friends with all of these mm -hmm. people. So, I mean... It was just a crazy, powerful experience that really represents Ben's Chili Bowl. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of representation um, this time around in Sundance with women of color directors, and I'm absolutely, like, happy as hell about it. I couldn't think of another word. Ecstatic. It's, it's very exciting, and it gives a lot of hope for, like, the future. Like, what kinds of stories do you typically like to tell? Um, 
I have to agree with what you just said. I was at the women's celebration yesterday afternoon for a short second and, or maybe that was two days ago, all the days are blending <laughs> together, but it was one of the most inspiring experiences. I mean, I was with someone this morning that talked about the first women's celebration that was held in someone's living room five years ago wow. and there were 30 people. This time they had to have it in a venue that had several hundred people. Mm. And it was the most inspiring experience. I mean, that I don't want to misquote, but I think 40% of the films have a, a female director attached to it in some way. Yeah. I mean, the represented, representation of women of color is unparalleled, so... What kind of stories do you um, enjoy telling? Like, obviously, we see Traveling While Black. Like, what other stories are you looking forward to telling in the future? I love character-driven stories, but I also love helping bring to light stories of people that are not fully able to bring their stories to light. So I love, I mean, the first film I ever worked on was a film called Life Animated, and it was about an autistic boy, Owen, and it was directed by Roger Ross Williams, who co-directed, who directed this film right. as well. And it was just telling Owen's story from his own perspective, which sounds crazy to tell to, that that's so innovative, but yeah. telling an autistic boy's story from his perspective and learning about his story through his family was okay. something that hasn't really been yeah, done before. And so those are the kinds of stories that I want to tell. I mean, I... Yeah. My last question pretty much is what's next for you? Well, so we're hoping on traveling the Traveling While Black installation, and we're working on figuring out how to make that possible. So that's what's happening with Traveling While Black, and I will, of course, be very involved in that. And then I'm actually starting a feature documentary that I'm signed on as one of the producers for um, about Travis Barker, the drummer from Blink-182, yeah. and uh-huh. it's going to be the life and death, near death of Travis yeah. Barker. Um, and then also working on a film about Harry Belafonte, yes. which is really my passion project. I love him. Um, I used to tell people he was my grandfather when I was little, so he kind of looks like him. <laughs> um, but the Harry Belafonte took over The Tonight Show for a week in 1968 and had Martin Luther King, RFK, all on the show. Wow, I did not and know that. And no one knows about it, but the craziest thing is that he had f- over 40 interviews, and back in the 60s, they used to tape over film stock, so oh. the only two that survived are MLK and RFK, and they reused all the other tapes, so... Wow. And it's a crazy piece of history That's that no insane. one knows about, so just re telling that story and piecing it back together of like what was that week like what happened in that week so that's the other film that I'm working on now well I can't wait to see it and I'll be sure to post all of your uh, whereabouts and your social and everything so people can follow you and keep up with you on our pages thank you so you guys uh, I'm sitting here with Tyree Chapeau uh, from Philly, yay! Hello. I, I always talk about Philly on this podcast. Uh, oh, good. It might as well just be a Philly podcast. It's ridiculous. Nice. Uh, I like it. I like it. <laughs> um, she is the director and the writer of Sela and the Spades, which premiered at mm-hmm. Sundance Film Festival. Um, and she is also a black woman, and I am just beyond 
excited for her <laughs> and her journey and looking forward to hearing more about her and what uh, what she has going on next. So first, uh, Tyresha, tell me a little bit about your journey as a writer, director, and as a black woman. Like, do you feel like your experiences as a black woman, specifically from Philly, because, you know, we're very specific mm-hmm. types of people, do, does, that influ- <laughs> does that influence your storytelling at all? I mean, yeah, definitely. It's like, when I wake up in the morning, I am Tyree Chapeau. I am a black woman. I am from Philly. I love being who I am. And so I have no problem fitting it into my writing. Like the story is set at a boarding school outside of Philadelphia. I'm using air quotes right now. Mm -hmm. But like outside of Philadelphia, even though we didn't get to shoot in Philly because of the tax credit nonsense. Mm -hmm. So we shot in Massachusetts. But like, there's just Philly in the story and yeah. there always has been and there's an inherent blackness to the story and I think that you can tell that because people who watch it who are black watch it and they say it's like it's such a relief to watch a story about black people who just get to be and like who like I love what Lovey who plays Stella said about mm-hmm. it once she said that there's like this freedom to just exist as right. a black person and not have to like defend the fact that you're a black woman or have to like like the point of the story the point of the characters are not their blackness or their womanhood in a way but it's more like that is the norm for them and that is the center of their world and therefore they are the norm and Mm -hmm. so I like that and I think that that's how I always want to tell stories because that's how I am that's just how people are right so piggybacking off of that, um, I saw the movie described in its logline as The Godfather Meets the Babysitter's Club. And yeah. just kind of like knowing those two things, I can see where that's going. Yeah. But could you tell us a bit more about that, that logline and like, you know, the yeah. inspiration? Yeah, for sure. Well, when I was a kid, I really loved The Godfather and I really loved The Babysitter's Club. So it's just <laughs> like I was drawn to stories about about factions like about groups about people who had who may not necessarily be tied together through blood but who have this like indisputable spiritual connection to each other that made them fight hard for whatever work they believed in and that was true in the babysitter's club and it was true in the godfather Mm -hmm. um and so i think that like my love and like also like my lack of shame about my love of babysitter's club (laughs) and sweet valley high and just like those like To be quite frank, like mostly white girl, Mm -hmm. young adult novels, I don't have any shame about how much I love them because I know that there weren't a lot of black girl young adult novels where, again, it's just about being able to exist and being able to be and not having to... um, justify your existence. Right. I remember reading those growing up and like feeling like I never I never put it together that I that that couldn't be my life at the time. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I just never put that together. But I remember feeling like all of those girls in Sweet Valley High and they were Mm -hmm. ruthless. They were ruthless. (laughs) They were ruthless. It's just like I remember. I really related to that. Being like, yeah, damn. No, that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, exactly. most of the reason why I thought it couldn't be my life, I guess now in hindsight, is because my mom doesn't play that shit. But that's just how it I was. Know. <laughs> I know. It's like, how did they get away with all of this? Right. That's true. For, there were so many drafts of Sella and the Spades where her mom wasn't a part of the story. Yeah. And then I very quickly realized, like, oh, you know what? This is a black teenage girl who has a mom. It's impossible to leave that mom. Impossible. <laughs> like, that mom is like, probably the reason for a lot of how she is right and it's true and i wanted to you know be honest about that right so in variety i read that you have always been drawn to characters like tony soprano and like michael corleone Mm -hmm. obviously and like 
who are like pretty much like horrible people and like yeah. b- but still white men and they get like a lot mm-hmm. of human empathy from from us um, totally. And then there's like non-white characters like Nino Brown who don't really get the same response. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, n- nobody feels yeah. bad for Nino Brown. So like Sela yeah. C- being a young black woman, how much of those characters are inside of her? And like, are you hoping that the audience will be able to empathize with her in some way? I'm hoping that the audience empathizes with her, but I also have like a lot of faith and just belief that the people who are meant to empathize with her because they see her in themselves and they see themselves in her mm-hmm. will have no trouble doing that. Like, the people who don't need... To, I don't want to have to convince anyone to empathize with her, basically. Like, that's right. never the goal, or that was never my goal. It was more like, if you do, great. And if you don't, then maybe it's just not for you. But right. I'm not going to, like, work hard to convince you of her humanity because it's right there. It's very right. clear to me. Um, it's very clear to so many people. Um like, all kinds of different people see themselves in this girl and mm-hmm. in these situations that she's getting herself into. And I think it's because even though we know the things that she's doing sometimes may be wrong and hard to justify, mm-hmm. they make sense by her rules. And, like, they make sense by, through it by because of the way that she sees the world and what she sees is right and wrong. Right and, wrong. Mm-hmm. and I think that that's why we do empathize with those, you know, the Godfather, The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, all those guys mm-hmm. is because we're, we're given the privilege of understanding the way they see the world first. Right. And therefore, we judge their actions through those ways of seeing the world as opposed to, like, some blanket idea of morality. Right. So I wanted to do that, but for, you know, a black girl. Because right. I feel like we don't get that chance. We don't. And that's bullshit, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, we're pretty much presumed guilty before we could ever be innocent, so... Yeah. Yeah. And it's nonsense. I think we have to be honest about the role that fiction plays in how we treat one another and how we empathize with people. Mm -hmm. I think fiction's incredibly important. I've always thought that. I just think it's really important that we make sure that, that we give that same empathy to people who are not what we in America and in the Western world view as the norm, which is white men. Yeah. And, you know, kind of to your point, like I write also. And one of the Mm. things that I always run into with people when we're and even when I used to do casting for I used to do casting for reality shows. When I used to do that, Uh. they always wanted they were like, oh, we can't have a black character who is not you know, a complete, like, like the straight man or the law-abiding citizen right. or something like that. Right, and I'm like, right. I'm like, well, why not? And they're like, well, because black people are always portrayed as, like, burglars. I'm like, well, some people, some black people steal. Like, you know some what black, I mean? Like, some black, just, people still, some black people sell drugs. So what? Right, but <laughs> like, they also exactly. might be, like, good people who, you know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. Possibly fell on hard times or, you know, are trying to make something happen just for like their family. Or maybe they like to steal. Like, steal. I honestly, and <laughs> that's okay. I like... I mean, okay, you know. But it's human characters. That deserves a story, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's like a lot of people, especially, like, in, like, white boardrooms and places like that, they don't want to make minority characters human characters. And it's like... Right. I mean, granted, you know, I'll take the the shine. But I'm just saying, (laughs) like, you know, we we can also be normal like everybody else. So it's very interesting how that happens. But, um... To that point, too, what advice would you give other, like, black women, women of color who have original stories mm-hmm. to tell in our voices and from our perspectives who might feel, like, a little oppressed in that sense? Yeah, I think something that I started to do when I would come across, you know, potential investors or potential producers or whatever who I noticed had an issue with a black girl dealing drugs and not feeling any remorse about it and Mm -hmm. that not being like the point of the story my dog is barking in the background um 
something that I started to do and that I keep doing now and will continue to do until I die is when someone says something that is kind of like passive aggressively racist and they don't even realize the damage of their words. I just kind of ask them like, oh, what do you mean by that? And it's like, yeah, it's really fascinating to watch people have to explain what they mean when they say, oh, why does Sela live in like this large house in this wealthy neighborhood? Like, shouldn't she be, you know, maybe Sela should be poor and maybe that will make the story make more sense. And then I would say, oh, why is that? Yeah. <laughs> why does she have to it's be just, poor? It's, yeah, exactly. like it's fascinating to watch people try to dig themselves out of like a hole of casual racism because I think that people are coming from like places of really good intentions Mm -hmm. but sometimes it's good intentions that keep us in the exact same place as opposed to moving forward Mm -hmm. and so I guess my advice my biggest advice is like ask people why they're saying the things that they're saying not even like in a it's not even about for me it was never about like a confrontational thing and it was Mm -hmm. always more like I don't know why somebody, or I know why, but like I don't believe in what they're saying, and so I need to understand why they believe what they're saying. Right. Um, that has at times made it so that I know what kinds of people I can't work with, and I know what kinds of people I don't want attached to this project or other projects, and that is as helpful as finding the right people, mm-hmm. knowing which ones you want to stay away from or which ones you can't save, yeah. and you can't save everybody. You surely but can't. But I think like. Yeah, and it's hard because you want to make a movie, you want to make your stories, you want to write what you want to write. And so sometimes I think that it's it's hard not to give in to pressure to make it more what others want it to be. Mm-hmm. Really hard. Yeah. God, it's so hard. I just want people to never give up on that <laughs> because yeah. it's so important. It's so fucking important to not have stories that all sound the same. And it's so important to so not have important. a bunch of characters who have the same skin tone and then look the same and act the same and all do the same things and just fade into the background. But it's so important and it's so worth the fight. And mm-hmm. it is a fight, but it's worth it. And I just, I guess it's also like, it makes me feel a little bit better every day to know that there are more people who look like me who are the gatekeepers every day. Right. Um, and I hope to be one of those people who just leaves the gate open, basically, and isn't doesn't have to keep the gate anymore. And I think that that gives me hope that that means that the people who are coming, who are trying to write and get those ideas out there, that they will see more familiar faces and will have a little bit more confidence in their voice and mm-hmm. keeping by or standing by their voice in their gut. Listen, I feel inspired. I, I think I, I realized, <laughs> like, even hearing what you're saying, um, it made me think about how a lot of times people, specifically white people, <laughs> can <laughs> like to keep uh, people of color in categories because that's where they're most yes. comfortable having them because that's what they're more yes. familiar with. So when yes. someone is approached, and, and not all not all white people, and, like, also not all, you know, it's not just white folks. But right. a lot of times people just want to have you in that, like, oh, she's rich and she sells drugs, but that doesn't make any sense. Like, well, why doesn't that make right. sense? It's completely possible. Everybody wants money. Yeah. You know what I mean? Everybody <laughs> like, wants money. Everybody wants power. Like, exactly. we live in a capitalist society. That's just the nature of the game. Right. But it's like, that's not what they're used to, so they can't right. categorize you. And if you're out of the category, then they don't know how to interact with you, and it's an insecurity. Mm-hmm. And it's the same yeah. thing for characters. Um, you know, it, it's it's very... It's strange, but, you know, mm. human behavior. I know. So I know. <laughs> it's so strange. So I'm curious to know, like, what's next for you? Um, obviously, the movie did well at Sundance. Uh, what's next for you now? What are you excited about? What am I excited about? I mean, 
I've been reading some great stuff and it's been fun to enter into conversations about potentially writing or directing these projects. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to take it slow and just take a little bit of time off, but it's really hard to convince myself to do that when there's so much good stuff to start working on immediately. Right. Um, and then I've been working on writing, um, like another, or Cell in the Spades was born out of this multimedia project, Cell in the Spades and Overture. So I'm working mm-hmm. on writing another multimedia project that I want to do this summer about a woman who is in like her late 20s and sort of gets exhausted with the world and like very slowly retreats into only having a world within her apartment. And so it's about mm-hmm. like her friends and family and people who love her or just miss her in the world coming to visit her and them getting into these conversations about what it means to essentially be alive Mm -hmm. um and what it means to not be dead but to cease living right um so i'm really interested in that and i'm really excited about that because it's like i really like multimedia stories and it'll feel really cool to return to that for a little bit of time while also working on the next feature film which who knows what it'll be but I'm working on it <laughs> nice that is awesome I mean that yeah. that premise sounds super dope it kind of sounds like me yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm trying me to too. do more I us, know. trust me <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm like I need to I'm not going out there that's uh, <laughs> how I spend most of my my weekends but um, I feel you <laughs> yes so will you tell the people where they can follow you where they can find you um so that people can like keep up with you and everything and what we'll do is we'll post all of that also on our podcast page and we'll be keeping in touch with you because i'm excited about you you made i I remember reading about you a long time ago and i got really Mm -hmm. excited so please tell the people where they can find you yeah i'm on social media um i think my twitter handle is just at tyresha my first name and then my instagram is so embarrassing when i say it out loud but i'll never change it i love it tyresha saurus rex i I love it (laughs) so you should follow me on instagram i love instagram i love images and i love meeting new people who are like down to talk about stories so do reach out if you want to yeah i'm always down to talk Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Of course.